when we lack a clear understanding of what sin really is and what it does, we will fail to see how good the good news really is. Most people in the church, most people who, who come and sit in the seats and go to fill all these churches, you know, that you drive by on the way here on a Sunday morning, fail to have a clear understanding of what sin really is and what it does. Because we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about it. It's uncomfortable for us. But when you have a clear understanding of what it actually is, what it does to you, what it does to your relationship with God, you'll then finally be able to see how good the good news really is. The whole purpose of Christmas was God initiating his redemptive plan for humanity. It wasn't God saving his people from Rome, it was God saving his people from themselves. And so in Go Tell It on the Mountain, right, there's these lyrics, like, like it comes to the least likely people. Then there's like this message. And this message really does change everything. When you have a clear understanding of what sin really is and what it does, and you have this understanding of how good the good news really is, it's a message that you have to share. So the lyrics to Go Tell It on the Mountain remind us that the good news is so life-changing that it should be impossible to keep to ourselves. Like it, it, if it really is, if it really is that good, if things were really that bad, if, if like you were really that separated from God and impossible to bridge the gap, like this is the best news ever that has ever been told. This is the greatest story in the history of humanity. We are in week three of a teaching series, they said, like uh, called the Christmas Playlist. Um, the purpose of this series has really been for us to look at some of the classic songs that we traditionally sing, uh, you know, during the Christmas season, and then to actually understand what they mean. You know, uh, so many of the classic Christmas carols uh, are filled with words and with language that we're pretty unfamiliar with in the 21st century. Uh, and so we sing them, and, and they're traditional, but we don't always understand exactly what we're singing. So that's part of the purpose. I'd say maybe even like, like a greater purpose to this series is, is that, uh, you know, as, as I look out, I see so many people in the church who seem to be coming more and more and more and more unfamiliar with the different uh, prophetic layers to the Christmas story. And the Christmas carols uh, that we traditionally sing, because they're so rich in theology, They've always kind of, kind of served to, to, to sort of remind and to reinforce for us uh, the dramatic events around Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago. They've always kind of served to help reinforce, along with the teaching, but, but in the season we're in for like, you know, uh, an entire month plus, or however early the songs start to go, I feel like the more and more like depressing, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the world seems to be, you know, the earlier the Christmas songs start, but they've always kind of served to reinforce for us, uh, you know, the, the, and remind us of the, of the different prophetic layers to Christmas, right? That it's more than just, you know, the, 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 the hustle and the bustle and the busy, and it's more than just like the, 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 the birth scene or the nativity, but that like 750 years before Jesus' birth even, like so, so the, the, the Christmas carols, they kind, of, they kind of, you know, underpin so much of what the Christmas season feels like and, and reveal for us, you know, kind of this, this grand tapestry that we read from the Old Testament to the New Testament of God really bringing Jesus to earth and fulfilling his promise to restore humanity who had fallen through sin. And so um, that's, that's kind, of, kind of been the focus of this series. You know, if you've if you've been at this church for any length of time, uh, you know, and if it's your first Sunday, I'm, I'm going to let you in on something, but if you've been here for any length of time, uh, you know that um, 
you know, worship around here is a high value. Uh, it's a high value here. Um, coming together, singing songs together each week that, you know, set our eyes back on Jesus, that set our focus back on Jesus. It's a huge part of what we do here every single week. It's, it's by design. It's not an accident. You know, if you've been here, you know that, that our typical worship experience on a Sunday morning, it's not very traditional, meaning we don't, we don't sing a lot of hymns. Uh, most of our songs that we choose to sing are much more, you know, current, much more recent. But it's not, it's not for the purpose of just being like cool, hip, relevant, and all that. What, what's, the, what's the latest and the greatest? Like, like I want to let you in a little bit on the strategy behind this because there's a reason for why we select cer- certain songs that we sing. And I think I want to help you understand this because, because even in light of Christmas, like I want you to understand why the lyrics all matter. And so there's a strategy behind why we select the songs that we sing. In fact, if you're taking notes, I would tell you this. We really believe that one of the primary ways the church teaches theology is through the songs that it sings. And this is why we take very seriously what the lyrics to a specific worship song are communicating before we ever put it into a Sunday playlist. Isn't that right? So, so we, we, we pour over the lyrics. We make sure that it's teaching good stuff, that, that like we're, we're singing stuff that actually matters. And, uh, you know, um, I think all of us, you know, um, who, who are responsible for this have had times where we've been in, in church singing a song and we're like, uh, I'm not sure I bl- agree with that, <laughs> you know, or like, I don't know what that just meant that I sang. And so it really matters, um, not just that we sing in a, in a way that like lifts our spirits, but that we're, we're, we're declaring and proclaiming truth. You know, there are so many things from a theological perspective that we just cannot uh, cover every single week in a sermon. And so historically speaking, one of the primary functions of worship has, has always been to sort of help to reinforce proper theology in the church. Uh, like all throughout history, like the, the songs that the church would sing as they gathered, it helped to reinforce proper theology. And so much of what I love about the Christmas carols, m- many of them uh, have some of the best theology that you can find, and it's all set to music. And so many of the songs that we sing this time of year are quite literally sermons that you can sing. They're that rich in theology. They're that good. It's like I, I, if, if, if uh, you know, some of our um, sort of modern day, you know, uh, you know, songwriters for the, you know, worship uh, songwriters could just uh, have, have ha- ever had the opportunity to sit down with some of these, these, uh, these old, you know, uh, pe- people who, who wrote those songs. There's a lot that they could learn about, about having rich, deep theology. And so uh, what I want to do today is I want to help you see and I want to help you, help you understand the rich theology that is found in, uh, man, one of, the, one of the most classic Christmas carols we have, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go Tell It on the Mountain. So here's the lyrics. I want to just, just refresh it. Uh, in your mind. We just sang it a few minutes ago, but the lyrics are on the screen. Uh, It says, while shepherds kept their watching or silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. The shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's birth. Down in a lowly, lowly manger, the humble Christ was born, and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. And, I, and then uh, here's the fourth verse. It's, it's uh, maybe less common. Uh, and Tim sang it at the end. Uh, he made me a watchman upon the city hill or city wall. And if I am a Christian, I am least of all. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Now, we don't know exactly who wrote Go, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, 
Um, but I, I, uh, I know that it has been a part of, uh, you know, it's been, been very familiar around Christmas for so many of us for such a long time. Uh, I remember uh, one of my clearest memories of this song was when I was a youth pastor, probably about 15 years or so ago. Uh, you know, we would have uh, on Wednesday nights like, like a, um, a youth version of a church service. So like I'd preach a sermon, we'd have worship, uh, you know, kids would bring their friends, we'd have, we'd have some fun together too. But uh, I remember uh, this, this young man, a good friend of mine uh, at the time, and, and we're still keeping in touch today, but he, he uh, wanted to start uh, helping us have live worship for our youth group. So before we were doing like CDs or, or videos or whatever, and he's like, you know, he kind of knew a little bit of the, of the guitar to just to be a little dangerous. And so he, uh, he just decides he's going to start start and it was bad for like such a long time like you know it's like it was bad bad like and uh and so he's learning right and 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 it starts to improve and get better and we get to like the christmas season and he goes hey like i think about i'm thinking about uh, incorporating some christmas songs you know into uh uh you know into the december you know set list on wednesday nights i'm like cool man sure and so uh one particular night like we're in worship we're singing christmas carols we're all excited i got a great message and if you've ever Maybe you can imagine, because most of you probably haven't ever preached before, but like the, uh, the, the, the worship, like if you're getting ready to preach, like the worship is like really important because you're, you're, you're kind of tuning into what's going on and, and it helps set you up. And so I'm, I'm excited, like, I, like we're in this like good worship set and, and I'm listening to, to it and, I'm, and my heart is connected with God. And all of a sudden he starts, uh, go tell it on the mountain. And he's like halfway through it, and, uh, and, and this, this worship leader, he just, he stops, like right in the middle of the song, and, he's, and he just goes, is this even a Christmas song? Like, why are we, why, why did I pick this? And I, I just am like, wow. Uh, so, so uh, well, here we go. I guess like everything, you know, all the, all the connection I was feeling uh, setting me up for my sermon, uh, it just was interrupted, and I'm like, uh, yeah, it is a Christmas song. Let's, let's get back to it. And so uh, we don't know exactly who wrote Go Tell It on the Mountain, but we do, in fact, know. Uh, that it is a Christmas song. Like, we have figured that part out. Uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain uh, was a slave song, commonly uh, called a Negro spiritual. Uh, It was most likely first sung in the South sometime between 1840 and 1860, just before the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves by President Lincoln in 1863. It is uh, important to note that this song was not written. It was sung as was the case of so many other Negro spirituals as well. So Go Tell It on the Mountain was passed down orally, meaning it just kept being sung amongst the slaves over and over and over again, but no one had ever written it down. In 1907, a man named John Wesley Work Jr., a professor of music and an African-American himself, became the first person to compile and publish the many different Negro spirituals that had been passed down through oral tradition. Among those listed in his second volume was, in fact, Go Tell It on the Mountain. So John Wesley Work Jr. may not have written uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, but he for sure deserves the credit for the fact that we still sing it every year at Christmas. The song appears to be based on two primary passages of Scripture, obviously the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, and then uh, it's also based off an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, which I have on the screen for you right here, which says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Now, Isaiah 52 here is where the prophet Isaiah foretells of the day when the good news of the Messiah will be announced throughout the earth. 
right? And he writes these words some 750 years before they actually take place, right? Before the birth of Jesus. And, and it's interesting to note, too, that, that it comes in Isaiah 52, which is ju- just one chapter before he begins to talk about uh, and prophesy about the death of Jesus. Here he's talking about there's going to be a day when, when the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is proclaimed throughout the earth, how the Messiah, uh, you know, will, will come, and it'll be good news for all people. And so the author of this famous carol, whoever he was, the slave, you know, in, in you know, maybe, the, maybe the middle of the 1800s, is essentially saying to us, go to the mountains and tell everyone everywhere the good news about Jesus being born. That's essentially the message, the primary message of go tell it on the mountain. Now, there is significance to the imagery of mountains in this song and to this, this prophecy in Isaiah 52, which says again, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, in those days, most cities in the Middle East were settled in between mountains. And when people in those cities were waiting for really any news, but especially good news, they would look toward the hills or they would look towards the mountains because that's the first place you could see a messenger coming along. So when you're anticipating information, right, you're not getting like, like a notification on your phone, obviously, like, like the kinds of notifications they received in the ancient Near East were from the mountains, like quite literally, because the cities are settled in between. So somebody had to come over the mountain and when, when, when you would look out and see them, you would, you would recognize that like information is coming or news is on its way. The first ones to, to see the messenger of good news would typically be the city watchman. And if the messenger, you know, coming over the mountains was carrying some kind of flag, it usually meant that they had kind of won the battle. So the, the person, the watchman on, on the, the, uh, the tower of the wall would be the first person to see them, which is why the writer of Go Tell It on the Mountain uses that imagery in verse, in verse 4 where he says, he made me a watchman upon the city wall. Okay? Upon the city wall. Think of the words of, of uh, King David in Psalm 121, the famous psalm. Listen, listen to these, these words in light of what I just helped you, under, uh, helped you see. David says, I lift my eyes to the what? To the hills. He says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? What's David saying? These are desperate words from King David. If, you, if you've read his story of tragedy and triumph and more tragedy and triumph, you know it's just like cyclical in his life and he's gone through so much stuff, like so much bad. And this is one of those moments where he's just like, I don't know what to do. I'm desperate. And he says, he says I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Because he, he knows like in, in their culture, right? That's what you do. Like you, you look to the hills, you look to the mountains. That's where the information is coming. When you look to the hills and you see someone carrying a banner or a flag, it signifies to you that you've won the victory, you've won the battle. He says, where does my help actually come from? I'm looking to the hills and I'm desperate for someone to help me. And he says, my, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So go tell it on the mountain right? Think about this. Think about the imagery. Think about the mountains. It, it reminds us that you and I, that we are the ones to, uh, who announce to people, I, I see him. I see him. Victory has come. That's what this song does for us. It reminds us of, 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 like, of like who we are, that like if we really are a watchman on the city tower, that, that, that you and I are the ones who announce to people, like I see him. There he is. There's the good news, right? Victory has come to us. Isaiah 52, uh, again, this prophecy, we see the ancient prophet Isaiah imagining all different kinds of groups of people scattered all over the world, different cities, 
different situations, uh, different classes, all waiting, all looking to the hills, all desperate, all waiting for good news, all overwhelmed and oppressed by the curse, scared to death, without hope. And Isaiah 52, he says, finally comes this messenger from the mountains to announce that the battle is over and that the kingdom is restored. Powerful. This song, is, it, just because it's a little bit more upbeat, just because it's got you know, a little bit more get up to it, like, doesn't, doesn't mean that it's void of like, deep and rich theology. Romans chapter 10 is interesting because now we move to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul, who writes the majority of the New Testament, right? he, he uses the very same Old Testament text in Isaiah 52 as his main reference point in establishing the primary Christian mission. What Christians call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that's where Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 takes that charge from Jesus and he begins to expand upon it. And, and as he expands upon it, he actually references Isaiah 52 from 750 some years prior. He explains in Romans 10 like the urgency of the gospel, that Jesus has come to save people from every tribe and every tongue on earth but that they have to receive this offer from Jesus in order to be saved. And so Paul concludes here in Romans 10, if, if you want to look at this on the screen, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? Where is it written? He's quoting the Old Testament. So as it is written, he's quoting Isaiah 52 right here. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So if you're taking notes today, I want you to look at this thought with me. That Go Tell It on the Mountain is a song that connects the Christmas story to the Christian mission. It connects the Christmas story to the Christian mission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, a huge part of our church's vision is, uh, is that we are passionate about making Jesus known. Like that we, we want to be a church that is an evangelizing church. We want to be a, a church that shares the good news of Jesus with other people who have yet to hear the good news or yet to respond to the good news. So this is, I mean, this is a huge part of our vision as a church. Like, like we have like six main pillars that kind of prop up everything we're about and everything we want to do as a church, everything we feel called to specifically. And one of, like, like the very first main one is that we want to, we're a church that is passionate about making Jesus known, about, about sharing the good news with people. And, uh, and, and this song kind of, kind of reminds us all of the importance and the significance of telling people the good news of Jesus. When you look closely at the lyrics of Go Tell It on the Mountain, the song itself, it really highlights some pretty surprising things, like some things that you wouldn't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, um, guess. If you hadn't know, didn't know the story of Jesus' birth, guess would even be in there. Uh, and I want to show you a few of those as we go along this morning. The lyrics remind us that 2,000 years ago, if you're taking notes, the good news was first proclaimed to the most unlikely people. It, it, that's what the, I mean, the song reminds us of that, Right? Go Tell It on the Mountain reminds us that this message of hope, this announcement that the Messiah has finally arrived, comes first to the lowly shepherds. The lowly shepherds. Look at this lyric. Uh, it's the first, first verse. While shepherds kept their watching, 
or silent flocks by night. Behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. So think about these lyrics for a second, okay? And then think about a Civil War era slave singing these words, okay? Out of all the characters in the, in the nativity story for a slave to identify with, the shepherds had to be the most likely. Think about a slave singing these lyrics, likely being drawn to the story of the shepherds since the shepherds were the lowest class of people in a first century Jewish culture. Go Tell It on the Mountain reminds us of the story of the shepherds, the classic story of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And uh, I want to just, just kind of read this account again uh, for those of you who, who, who maybe um, uh, haven't had a chance to read that, that yet this year. It says in, in Luke 2, 8 through 20, uh, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, as, as you might be as well. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds uh, said to them. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So, this is the nativity story right here, right? You can picture the nativity scene in your mind, right, that we all know so well. Each of the characters perfectly situated around the manger in a stable with a star shining down from heaven, you know, and... You know, my thought on this is that I think that we, have, we often have a romanticized version of the nativity in our minds. Like, we see these cute nativity scenes, we see the shepherds, we see these cute little farm animals. We, we kind of have in our minds the pictures of the good-looking, strong young men, like, in outfits, like, on a, on a uh, you know, a church uh, pageant, you know, or whatever, where we see them wearing, like, sheets and, like, you know, whatever, having a staff with sashes and bandanas or whatever, and, and, and we assume, you know, those shepherds in the first century must have been pretty cool, uh, you know, glowing, uh, you know, whatever, clean-shaven faces, humbly looking at, you know, the Christ child in the manger. But the truth is, is that the shepherds were basically homeless people. I, I, I mean, essentially, like, I mean, they, they um, you know, they were very insignificant. Shepherding was the least desirable job, um, it was the ultimate unskilled labor that you could find. The proof of that is that they often gave this job to children. You think of, of the term, you know, a shepherd boy. You know, that we see that in, in, in the Old Testament too. That so-and-so was a shepherd boy, often a, a job given to a boy. So when you're a grown man, being a shepherd, uh, that meant pretty much a total life fail. That meant that, uh, uh, yeah, plan, you know, the plan you had uh, didn't, didn't uh, turn out. At a party, you know, when someone asks you, uh, so like, what does your son do? Um, no one wanted to answer that question, right? 
Uh, he's a shepherd, uh, because the next question would be, uh, so what went wrong? Like, why did he end up doing that, right? Uh, you want to make something up. It's like saying, you know, he lives in my basement and he plays video games all day. Like, that's, that's the, equi- the equivalent of, of what's going on here. So, you know, beyond all of that, beyond this, like, not being, like, a very desirable job and being, like, low, 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 low class, especially for grown men, like, the shepherds were always dirty. They're always dirty. I mean, they, they stayed outside with animals for weeks at a time. They were the kind of people you could smell before you could see, you know? Um, I, you know, uh, you ever know anyone like that? You ever know anybody like that? You could smell them before you could see them? Anybody ever raised some teenagers? Like, you know what that's like, right? You can, it's like, whoa! Like, uh, the shepherds weren't considered respectable citizens in society. They had to work seven days a week. Uh, typically, and they couldn't take the Sabbath off to go to the temple like everybody else. And so shepherds were so low in society that their testimony wasn't even uh, accepted in the court of law. So if they had been an eyewitness to something, like they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. They were considered so low, so unrespected. So needless to say, the shepherds are not the typical candidates to receive the very first announcement about the birth of the Messiah. Wouldn't you agree with me? you're taking notes, like, look at this, this question. Like, why choose the shepherds to receive the message first? Like, that's what we have to ask. Like, we understand a little bit. Give you some context, like, who they were, kind of where they were in, in culture and in, 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 within their society. So then why does the angel, do the angels show up to the shepherds first and announce the birth of the long-awaited Messiah that had been foretold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior that, that so many people in their in, in their uh, um, you know, in, in, their, in their culture and in their society had been awaiting, longing for, hoping for that this prophecy would one day be fulfilled. Why is it that the, that the angels appear to the least likely shepherds and tell them first, announce to them first that the Messiah has come? We talk a lot here at the church about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. This initial announcement to the shepherds is demonstrating how different you know god's kingdom actually is you're taking notes like this announcement of good news of great joy that will be for all people was meant to demonstrate from its inception on earth the nature of the gospel the nature of the gospel that the gospel is not an an exclusive club for like the social elite it's not an offer based on one's status In coming to the shepherds first, God is showing that there is no one too broken, there is no one too poor, no one too insignificant for his kingdom. How amazing to think about the good news, the good news, the Messiah has come first being shared with the unlikely shepherds. How amazing to think about that. I don't know about you, but like, I think of my life sometimes, I think about what Jesus has done for me, I think about how he has stepped in and he's changed everything. But, but no matter like how long I've, I've walked with God and, and, and been you know, a, a, a person of, of, uh, uh, who's taken my faith seriously, like I still have moments where I just feel like an unlikely candidate for his grace. I feel like an unlikely candidate for that good news. And I mean, I mean think, think about how beautiful this is, though. And when we read the story of Jesus and his birth, that, that, that the most unlikely people to first hear the announcement are the shepherds, and they're the ones who are told. And it, and it does something to me, and I think it should do something to you, too, when we think about our own story and our, our own journey of like how unlikely you know, it is that like the God of the universe would care about my story and care about my journey, care enough to like, you know, pull me from, from what, what, whatever you know, sin and struggle and you know, brokenness I was in and, and give me the opportunity to, to, to be in right relationship with him. Of all the people he could save, why would he save me? 
You know? We can sometimes even look at our stories and just feel like the least likely person that Jesus would suffer and die for. But when we remember the shepherds, I think we should remember ourselves. And we remember that the gospel is good news for everybody. And that includes me and that includes you. Think about a slave now, right? The lowest in society singing these lyrics, probably in the field somewhere. Not from a place of rote memory like most of us. Go tell it on the mountain. But from a place of understanding that the gospel is really for everybody. Over the hills and everywhere. Think about the slaves singing these lyrics like in a, from a place of like deep understanding and deep um, appreciation of like what this really means for them. It's incredible. It's incredible. And so the good news was first proclaimed to the most unlikely people. Secondly, the lyrics to uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain remind us that the good news actually changes everything. Like, it changes everything. Like, like there, there's a message that needs to be told, right? That's, that's, that's kind of the, the, the idea behind the song here. Like, go tell what? Like, okay, there's a message you're going to go tell, you know, on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. There's a message. Like, what is this message? And in order to, like, like go with some level of urgency and to go to, like, the, the, the hills or to the mountains and to share it, there has to be this, the, the, this understanding that the message that you're carrying literally is like life-changing. It, it, it's worth sort of, sort of the risk. It, 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 it's something that like people need to hear. So go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, that this, this message, this good news, it changes everything. This is like what, what Paul talks about in Romans 1, where he talks about how I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? He says, because it is the power of God unto salvation. This is the, the gospel, it's power. It's like, I'm not ashamed, I'm not gonna keep it to myself. It's not something that I can just, I can just hold uh, on and, 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 and keep it inside of me. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it because I know what it's done for me and, and that the gospel really is power to change a life. You know, many of the old Negro spirituals, they focused almost entirely on God's promise of relief from suffering and oppression. If you remember any of them, if you, if you have any of those in your mind or have heard them, go tell it on the mountain is not any different. You think about it as slaves, they have to live in a terrible world under so much oppression. And yet, there is this knowledge, like in this song, there is this knowledge, this understanding that the birth of Jesus has brought about a new kind of world in which sin and suffering and slave masters will no longer reign over them. That's, that's what's going on here, right? And so in the midst of their suffering, there is this hope that they feel as they sing, go tell it on the mountain. It's this reminder to them, it's not always going to be this way. Like, it, like there is hope right around the corner. It's really interesting when we look at the history of this song, how much the daily reality for many of the slaves closely mirrors what was happening to the Jews in the first century during the time of Jesus' birth. There's some, there's some parallel. And to understand the full significance of Christmas, we have to understand the condition of the world to which Jesus came 2,000 years ago, right? The Jewish people have been oppressed for a very, 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 very long time. They'd been oppressed under the Hasmonean dynasty, and now at the time of Jesus' birth, they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. Central to the Jewish faith was this belief that a deliverer or Messiah would come someday and rescue them from this oppression. Like, that's what they held on to. That was this hope, right? Like, it's not always going to be this way. Like, they're, 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 it was like what helped get them up in the morning to, to know that, like, even though it's bad right now, it won't always be bad. So for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had waited They'd waited in anticipation 
for the old prophecies of this coming Messiah to be fulfilled? As you can imagine, though, as the years passed, many people stopped believing. Right? If you were told uh, uh, that, you know, the future is going to look a certain way, just hang on, keep believing, and many generations have come and gone, like, wouldn't, wouldn't you too, like, struggle to keep, like, believing? To, to believe that, like, like you know, that, that, that that's worth, like, like, banking your life on? Uh, wouldn't you start thinking, hey, maybe, maybe somebody heard wrong. Like, maybe that, maybe that isn't exactly what, what had happened. And so many people stopped believing. They chalked up the story of the Messiah to a fairy tale or to folk, folklore. Many stopped believing that, that better days would actually come. Many abandoned their faith altogether. And to add... Insult to injury, maybe you've heard this, this but I, I think I've mentioned it before, but about 65 years before Jesus was born, the Roman general Pompey the Great would lead his army into Jerusalem and they would lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. Pompey marches right past the temple guards and goes right into the temple. He goes past the priests and right into the Holy of Holies, the place where the Jews believed that God dwelled the place where only the high priest could enter once a year, that place where the Jews believed that if you went into the Holy of Holies unannounced and uninvited, God would strike you dead. The priests must have gasped and been horrified as they witnessed Pompey the Great walk right into the Holy of Holies, look around, and walk out. And nothing happened to him, completely unscathed. Word spread throughout Jerusalem, and the implications were clear. Jupiter, the god of the Romans must be greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because the thought was like, if God was so powerful, how could he just stand by and do nothing? Like if God was so powerful, how could he just allow like Pompey to walk in to the Holy of Holies and nothing happened to him? And I wonder like, I mean, this is the question they were asking 2,000 years ago, but have you ever asked that question yourself? Like if God was so powerful, how could he just stand by and do nothing? Where is God in all of this, Right? I mean, honestly, have you ever, you ever like, like, like felt that question just like, 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 you know, forming in your mind, in your thought process? How could God? And what most people did not know was that just outside of town in a stable, born in a manger, God came on a mission to change everything. Most people in first century Israel had no idea that the good news had finally come. Because God did not come to fanfare. He didn't come to a big parade. There wasn't a big welcoming party. He came in the most humble of ways. And he came to a stable surrounded by barn, you know, farm animals. And most people had no idea. But I want you to think about this for a moment. If the good news really changes everything, if it really changes everything, then what would the good news really mean to those who heard it and to those who believed it? What would it really mean? Like, if it really does change everything, like, what would it mean like, to the people who heard? Like, like, so the shepherds go and they tell everybody what they'd seen and heard. Like, if they really believed it, like, what would that mean to them? What would that do for them? It would shift their life, right? It would change everything. What we see here in this story is that the good news is first proclaimed at a time when hope is very, 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 very hard to find. Very hard to find. So we have, you know, the slaves and what they were dealing with in the 1800s and the lack of hope and this, this, this like, belief and this, 
this, uh, you know, this, this idea that like, you know, things are gonna change or it's not always gonna be this way. And we see that in first century Israel. We see that going on with the Jews too. This idea that like, man, Jesus is coming. Like, like there's something, the Messiah is coming. There's something about this uh, that is going to change. But like we see this in our life too. How the message, the gospel, the good news changes everything. Matthew 121 the angel uh, tells, tells Joseph that she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is an incredible thing to say. This is an incredible declaration about the mission and the purpose of Jesus. This idea that Jesus is the answer for sin. Notice the words from the angel here that he will save his people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph that Jesus is not coming to save his people from the oppression of Rome but that he is coming to save his people from their sins. They're, like These are not words that Joseph would have expected to hear. This is, this is not the image of the Messiah that people had built into their imaginations. They would have thought to themselves, like, like we definitely need to be saved from some things. Like we need, we need someone to come deliver us from some things. But sin isn't even on the list here. Like most people at the time Jesus came, they weren't thinking of sin as like this, this massive issue that they needed deliverance from. They were thinking like, hey, we're under oppression from Rome. We've got all these other problems. They wanted a Messiah who would, who would you know, kind of, um, you know, build up this uprising, this, this, this military uh, political force to sort of take over uh, Rome and get back what has been taken from them. They weren't looking for someone to save them from their sins because they didn't even think they needed to be saved from, them, from their sins. They believed that they had a religious system. They, they had the law intact that allowed them to make restitution for sin at the temple through animal sacrifice. And so what Joseph and the people of Israel wanted to be saved from was the Romans and the oppression. But look at this thought with me. It's really, it's really this is what ties us in right here. When we lack a clear understanding of what sin really is and what it does, we will fail to see how good the good news really is. This right here is one of the biggest things that like, I I couldn't preach this with more passion. I couldn't preach this with more conviction. This this is one of, I think I would say, one of the bigger issues in the Western church, one of of the bigger issues in the suburban church where, you know, we kind of fill our churches with people who, who, uh, you know, feel like they're pretty good people. And in many cases, based on, you know, some, uh, you know, sort of cultural definition, probably are, you know, pay their taxes, you know, obey the law, you know, raise their family to be good, you know, people who contribute to society. But most people in the church, most people who, who come and sit in the seats and go to fill all these churches, you know, that you drive by on the way here on a Sunday morning, fail to have a clear understanding of what sin really is and what it does. Because we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about it. It's uncomfortable for us. But when you have a clear understanding of what it actually is, what it does to you, what it does to your relationship with God, you'll then finally be able to see how good the good news really is. The whole purpose of Christmas was God initiating his redemptive plan for humanity. It wasn't God saving his people from Rome. It was God saving his people from themselves. And so in Go Tell It on the Mountain, right, there's these lyrics, like, like it comes to the least likely people. Then there's like this message. And this message really does change everything. When you have a clear understanding of what sin really is and what it does, and you have this understanding of how good the good news really is, it's a message that you have to share. So the lyrics 
to go tell it on the mountain remind us that the good news is so life-changing that it should be impossible to keep to ourselves. Like it, it, if it really is, if it really is that good, if things were really that bad, if, if like you were really that separated from God and impossible to bridge the gap, like this is the best news ever that has ever been told. This is the greatest story in the history of humanity. So again, think of the slave, right? Singing this song out in the fields, singing these lyrics, saying, go tell this everywhere. Tell them it's not going to always be this way. Tell the people it's not going to always be this way. Tell them that there is some good news that they must hear. I think that the I just get this, this image, this picture, right, of the fields. I get this image of a slave singing this song, like it, it, it reminding themselves and reinforcing, you know, this, this truth in them about, like, how good the good news of Jesus really is and how that good news is far greater than what their current circumstance is all about, telling us all that there is no group anywhere, no matter how broken or lost, surrounded by whatever mountains of oppression for whom Jesus has not won the victory, so we go tell it on the mountains over whatever hills and everywhere to all groups of all people in all places. That is what we do. That is who we are. We are a church that is passionate about making Jesus known. We're a church that is passionate about evangelizing the world, helping them understand that what, what reality really is, what truth really is. I read a story over the last, um, the last week about a pastor named Tim Lucas, who pastors a church up near Newark, New Jersey. And uh, a handful of Christmases ago, he was preaching about uh, the angels appearing to the shepherds, and he wanted to get out of the cute little nativity scene mindset that is so common and instead find some way to make it more real to his congregation. And um, So he began asking himself the question, which is on the screen, who would Jesus come to today if he came? Right? Like, 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 who would the shepherds appear to, and who would Jesus come to? Who, who, who would be at the manger today, right, if Jesus came now in 2022? And he figured the closest equivalent to the shepherds in our day would be the homeless. So he decided that week in preparation for his sermon, rather than just doing what he had always done to prepare for a sermon, that he would switch it up and live on the streets for a couple of days as a homeless man. This is how he, sh this is how he shared it with his congregation that Sunday, he said, on Wednesday of this week, I decided to be homeless on the streets for a couple days. First, I realized I did not have anything to wear. I could not wear my three-layer alpine ski jacket. So I went to a thrift store and bought homeless-looking clothes. Uh, you read, read on, and it says he went, to the, he went to Penn Station because that's where he most often encountered the homeless. He noticed that the homeless migrated towards the benches and public restrooms, and so he, he tried to sleep there. Uh, he goes on to say, but you can only sleep for about 10 or 15 minutes at a time because the police will come, they'll come by and bang on the bench and make you get up and walk around. Some of the homeless are old, some mentally disabled, a lot of addicts. Many had good, had good jobs at one point, but some tragedy set them on a tailspin. Alcohol and drug abuse was common as well. At 3 p.m., he said the shelters in Newark closed their doors, so if you're not in by three, then you're on the streets for the night. He said at 11 p.m., Penn Station closed its doors. He asked another homeless woman named Milagro what he should do next. And she graciously offered him a place uh, by a bridge near her to sleep. 
He said, I learned that the first spots to go on the city street are the benches. They're like VIP seating for the homeless. Or if you can find a spot next to the storm drain where hot air was blowing out, that was great too. He says about Milagro, she showed me how to sleep. Put down your cardboard board, your, your, put down your cardboard, then your blanket, and then lay on it. I was pretty uncomfortable with that, and so she said, sleep on the stairs or against the wall. That way, she explained, no one can attack you from behind. At 1 a.m., I finally fell asleep, and then someone kicked my boots. It was the guy who goes around cleaning up cigarette butts, and he said, out, out, out. At 2.30 a.m., I saw my first drug deal. All these teenage kids showed up with cash to buy a hit. They offered it to me, he said. Uh, I said, nah. Uh, I mean, I got to preach in three days, <laughs> so you can't really do that. Um, the police drove by and paid no attention to us. It was just a normal night in Newark. The homeless, it turns out, really never sleep. I went to offer a woman I saw on the ground a pair of socks. She freaked out and recoiled. She thought I was going to rape or attack her. He says this, I think, I think I have this on the screen. He says this, he says, the next morning I decided to ask a passerby for a buck for coffee. It was like I was invisible. It was like the Red Sea parting around me and then I realized at that moment that I am normally on the other side of this equation. I am the one coming out of the concerts, the games, etc., telling the kids not to pay any mind to these people. It was devastating to be on this side, to be invisible. Imagine taking this day after day, month after month, maybe even year after year. What is it like to live this way for years and never get to go home like I was able to do? What if your only hope is to get the good bench? What if your only hope is to get the good bench? Mother Teresa famously once said that the poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty of them all. And yet, these were the ones to whom Jesus first came. The shepherds. The least likely of them all. And the author of this famous Christmas carol, you know, Go Tell It on the Mountain, says in these lyrics, like, don't they deserve to know? Don't they deserve to know? Like, this message didn't just come to, like, the social elite, didn't just come to those who had status. It came to the least likely and the the, 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 you know, you think of the, the slave in the field singing the song, like they're saying, like, don't they, don't they deserve to know? Don't they deserve to know? Shouldn't we be scaling the mountains to tell them? Don't they deserve to know? Well-known uh, English missionary, J. Hudson Taylor, uh, was a missionary to China in the mid-1800s to the early uh, 1900s, um, Really incredible missionary, uh, you know, aren't familiar with who he is, but he, he was one of the first ones to go, you know, to, to a foreign nation and, and instead of trying to colonize them by making them be like him and, 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 and take on, you know, English uh, customs and wear three-piece suits. Like, he, he began to dress like, um, like the Chinese, and he began to kind of just assimilate into their culture to understand them. In fact, uh, they, they say that, that, that over time, uh, the longer he was there, the more uh, he actually appeared like he was from there. Uh, pr pretty amazing. But it's been said that Hudson Taylor could barely stand to be in a church in England where he was from uh, and hear the sound of a thousand Englishmen singing the praises of God. Like he, he could hardly stand it after he'd been um, to China where there were untold numbers of Chinese men and women he knew who were in bondage. 
So he'd be in a church service in England and he'd hear all these people singing and in his mind he'd be like, like what are we doing here? Like all these people are over there and they're in bondage. He struggled because the Englishmen in these church services would visit, uh, he would visit while in England would sit around talking about, you know, not necessarily being called or waiting on some special, you know, Damascus Road experience like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in order for them to get engaged, in order for them to feel like this was their burden to share the message and to share the gospel with others. And, uh, and, he, and he just hated it. Like, he hated, like, like being around that. Like, 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 you know, being with his countrymen in a church service and having them just, just go, I don't know, I think that's more for you. You're a missionary. That's not for me. That's not my job. I need to pray about it. I need God to reveal it to me. The founder of the Salvation Army was a man named William Booth, and uh, Salvation Army has always, you know, um, ministered to the homeless. And William Booth uh, famously said this um, in regards to people uh, being reluctant to get engaged with uh, those in need and with the sharing of the gospel. He said, not called, did you say? Refuse to hear the call? I think you should say. Just put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go back to their father's house and warn their brothers and sisters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul, and body, and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Called. Every single one of us, we are called to go tell it on the mountain, to be that first line that sees the message coming and tells everybody that we have seen him. We have seen the good news that victory has come. If you're taking notes this morning, and you guys can go ahead and come on up. If the good news really means that there is no one too lowly to pursue, to pursue, no one so insignificant for God to overlook, no one so guilty that God will forsake, no one so broken God cannot heal, no one so lost that God cannot find, that he is able to save even those we might consider the worst, then go tell it everywhere. Go tell it everywhere. There's a couple things I want to I just mention as I close. It's typically there's reasons why we don't go and tell it everywhere. A lot of it has to do with just like fear of man and what people are going to think of us. And, 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 and I get that. That's all, it's all part of reality. We, in, you know, we've all seen kind of the weird examples and maybe we don't want to be that. We don't want to be like kind of the, the, the freaks, you know, or whatever. And, but, but the way I've always kind of thought about this is like if, if this is really true, then, then it, sh- I mean, it really should like make me more of a freak than, than maybe I'm comfortable with. You know, like if it's actually real, like not just tradition that's been passed down, not just something that's, that's like, you know, it's got good, 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 you know, morals to sort of center your life around and help you be a better person in society. But if it's real, like if Jesus really did come, if he really did like live a perfect sinless life, if he really did go to the cross and take the sins of humanity, which include yours and mine, and, and, and suffer and die and shed his blood for the removal of the penalty of sin from your life and mine, it should make me a little bit more like a freak 
than maybe I'm comfortable with. And this message of hope that has changed my life, man, it should burn inside my chest. It should burn inside of me to let people know that hope has come, that Jesus has come, that Jesus has changed everything. And it should be a message, like Paul says in Romans 1, that I am not ashamed of because it is the power of God unto salvation. And so I don't know, I, I, we all got different personalities. We all got different giftings, and that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of the family of God. We have different talents. We have different things we're good at. Collectively, we come together on a Sunday with this burden for this message. We get reminded of what it's done for us, and then we disperse, and we go out and, 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 and in unique ways with the message of the gospel on our mind, never departing from our mind, keeping it at the front. We go through life and we look for moments and we look for opportunities where God might actually show up and God might use us to make a difference. I was just, uh, this past week on Tuesday, I was studying for this message. I was at a local coffee shop and I, uh, usually what I do on Tuesday mornings just to get out of the office and kind of have a, a different setting. I have my AirPods in and I'm studying for this sermon and a, a guy comes up to me and he, and he just says, hey, um, you mind if I sit down next to you? I'm sitting by the fireplace, of course, because I'm a wimp when it comes to cold. And uh, I, I'm usually like sitting inside with like gloves on. And uh, so, yeah, and I'm like, sure, you know, and I, and I just go back to studying for a while and, and uh, keep, keep staying pretty, pretty focused. Got to be somewhere um, for lunch. And so I, I begin to, take, to pack up, take the AirPods off. As soon as I take them out, he begins to engage conversation with me, asks me if I was in the military, which I'm like, do I give off that look, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, sweet. Uh, um, and he tells me it's a compliment, all that stuff. But then he goes on to tell me about how his dad served and just recently passed away. And I see this emotion in his face and tears running down his, his face. But I, I've kind of mentioned it before, you know, um, when you're a pastor, you kind of hold that card for a while. Like, like, you know, there's so many different thoughts of pastors out there. Never know what someone's experience has been with them. And so, you know, uh, it's like, I'm in sales, you know, or not really. Um, I don't ever do that, but, um, you know, I just hold it back. I, I'm, I'm very, I, you know, unless they just ask me right out uh, of the gate, I just kind of hold it back for a minute. And so, um, you know, we were talking, and, and he was telling me all that, and I'm not sure how much time I really have. And, uh, uh, and so I'm, a, I'm answering certain things without going, like, like too overtly into, you know, everything about Jesus. And, and then uh, finally, it comes to a point where it's like, I can't really hold this back. And so I, I mentioned, you know, that, that uh, man, we grieve differently. You know, those who, who uh, understand kind of the, the purpose of this season, what this season is all about, we grieve differently than, than others and that our hope is in Jesus. And I mean, he's just like weeping. He's got tears running down his face and, and uh, talks to me about some of his church, church background and things like that. And uh, his, uh, long story short, is like, I, I pray for this guy in a coffee shop. I kind of have a come to Jesus moment. He's clearly at a time of being like broken, you know, and I wasn't planning on it. Like I had no time for that. I had no time. I was late to where I had to go. I had to text and be like, hey, I'm running late, like sharing the gospel, you know. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, like you have to allow the interruptions to come. You have to have eyes to see that like God actually wants to use me like in, in practical ways, like outside of the church, like, like where I'm at. I got to have eyes to see the hurt. I got to have eyes to see people everywhere I go and watch what God will do. Allow yourself to be inconvenienced. Allow yourself to be interrupted. Don't, don't schedule yourself in such a way that you have no margin. I've said this to you before, and, uh, and I'm just kind of going today, I guess, but I, I just, I've told you this before that there's, um, that if you, have no, if you have no margin in your calendar and you have no margin in your finances, it's very difficult for God to ever use you. 
And so you build that margin in so that you, you can like be present in the moment where God can touch your heart and you can actually be used by him to make a difference. And uh, that's what, it's just one of, one, of, one of those ways. And so we exchange phone numbers and uh, we've been texting back and forth since. I've invited him to church. I hope he comes Christmas Eve. Uh, and uh, we're gonna get coffee again and, uh, and, and just hang out. But that's, that's what we do. Like, like I'm sitting there going, I got somewhere to be. But you know what? You know what? The Holy Spirit working in me reminded me in that moment that like the message of Jesus it burns within me, and I need to let it out. I need to look for the moments where it can come out, and it can be shared with people. Look, we've received a gift from Jesus, we've, haven't we? Like, if you're, if you're a believer, follower of Jesus, you've received a gift. Well, that gift needs to be shared with other people. It's not just for you, and it's not just for me. We share it with the world, amen? And so the question today is, who are you telling? Who am I telling? Who are we telling? Go tell it on the mountain. To who? To who? It's not just figurative, like it's not just like, like, okay, that's a good thought in theory. Like who actually are we telling? I want us to pray and I want us to ask God to give us the eyes to see people who need to hear the news that Jesus Christ is born. Would you stand with me this morning? Why don't you just bow your heads here? 11.34, I'm within my grace window. So, we're getting close here. Why don't you bow your heads for a second and just, just let this moment kind of not pass you by. Don't be too quick to, to leave. Hmm. Father, I ask that you right now in this room would just awaken in us right now, reawaken in us right now the beauty of the gospel reawaken in us right now that message of hope that we encountered however many years ago that changed everything. I pray that it would come from sort of the background, the, uh, the past memories, and it would flood our memories right now in the present. Reawaken in us the beauty of that message, the, the power of God to change our lives. I pray that it would come to the foreground right now. Burn that message in our heart today, oh God. I pray it wouldn't be something that we just lay aside, that, we're, we're, that we convince ourselves is for other people to, to, to share or other people to do. And I'm in my lane and they're in their lane. They're the ones who are experts. But God, would you, would you burn that message in our hearts? May it change us. May it shape us. And may we have eyes to see that there is hurting people everywhere, everywhere we look. And may we always err on the side of just, of just being so gracious and so kind and so benevolent. And may we show your heart to a hurting world. May we be the people who embody the radical alternative to the dominant message and story and spirit of the age. Show us how to walk in your grace and in your love and in your mercy and then fill our mouths with your words. In Jesus' name.